Thank you so much. Good morning. Hope you've had a wonderful week, wonderful time, Lord willing, with friends, family, as you've commemorated the birth of Jesus Christ. Tremendous time we had for those that had the opportunity to be here Christmas Eve service, where shoulder to shoulder we pondered the significance of the birth of Jesus Christ, and then, as is our tradition, ending with Silent Night and with the dimming of the lights and the glow of the candles reflecting upon how the light of the world is broken into the darkness of humanity and how you and I are likewise challenged to penetrate this darkness with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what we want to do on this Sunday, which finds itself right between Christmas and New Year's, it's a unique Sunday where you're positioned to become a little more reflective, looking back, and yet at the same time, wanting perspective as you are looking ahead, is to get your arms around a passage of Scripture that might be able to tie all that together. And so what we are doing is we're turning to Psalm 132, which is the fifth in our little December series on royal messianic psalms that tie together the promise that God has made with the Messiah who's to come, with all the still the future events that are to occur. And so this psalm was written most likely as a dedication time of the entrance of the Ark of the Covenant under the leadership of Solomon into Jerusalem, and it announces again the Davidic throne is to be forever. And so this song, in many ways, is a reflection upon all that is written about in the opening chapters of Second Chronicles. It's called a song of ascent. And here, Solomon would have these words penned in commemoration. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place and let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you on the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body... I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. 
He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. My enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. And he's talking about Jesus. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our fathers, we're coming now once again in your presence in this part of our worship. We're allowing for your word to be our guide. Not human opinion and not religious tradition, but your word. We think it through collectively on a Sunday morning, and then we've got to find a way to process this personally. In those hours to come when we're away from one another, where we have been gathered then to be scattered. And we take these truths, we press them deep into every aspect of our lives, into our decisions, to our leisure, to our relationships, to make a difference for your glory. In the midst of these days, Father, we've had the opportunity to be around people many that know Jesus, many that don't. And what I pray is that the believers of this church in particular have found a way to create dialogue and to develop interest in the one who came to die for our sins. And that simultaneously those that come out on these Sundays where we find them spiritually curious, intellectually hungry, but have not yet put faith and trust in Jesus, we'll find that this messianic psalm that describes the activities of David and Solomon roughly a thousand years B.C. and subsequent will speak to their hearts as the God who can orchestrate all the events in time can be the one who guides and directs them in the everyday decisions of life. So, Father, no matter what we're facing now, Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here to see Jesus, him only. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. For eight years, June worked by my side as executive secretary the church I pastored out east. And she was a woman who was steeped in God's word from childhood and seemed to have the Westminster Confession of Faith mastered front and back. Loved her Lord, raised in the Scottish Presbyterian tradition. We were having a quiet conversation one time in the midst, in between all the phone calls coming in. 
And she and the staff, we gathered together, and I, I was always impressed with her, her devotional life. And so I asked June at one point, tell me a little bit about your approach to prayer. And June responded with something that spoke to my heart and tied together her own experiences with the way she was raised in the ways of the Lord. She said, Gary, from my childhood, I learned to pray God's promises back to him and then praise him in advance for their fulfillment. I learned to pray God's promises back to him and then praised him in advance for their fulfillment. Here was a woman who understood the powerful connection between taking the promises of God and allowing them to so fill your heart that you respond with prayer to God. It's that sort of mindset that we need to have as we now get our arms around these 18 verses of this 132nd Psalm. Because in essence, what Solomon is doing as he is, in essence, commemorated this song in honor of the entrance of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and to make a powerful poetic statement with regard to the enduring legacy of the Davidic dynasty, he wants us to find the value of praying God's promises back to God, and then to praise him in advance for the fulfillment of those promises in our everyday personal experiences. What a way to develop your faith in God. What I want to do with that in mind is to draw out for us in these minutes together two significant promise shapers that will equip you and equip me as we're ending 2014, beginning 2015, to be able to approach this this new year with a sense of certainty and inner conviction that the promises of the past are relevant to our lives in the present. The first promise shaper flows out of verse 1 through 10, and I'm going to phrase it like this with you. The number one, the promises of God is provided shape. It's provided the shape, the appeals that we make to God. The promises God has provided shape, the appeals that we make to God. And now, Solomon begins by saying, remember, O Lord, in David's favor. He doesn't begin by saying, remember, O Lord, my favor. He's looking back. Now, what you and I need to do is to look back at the ways in which God's favor was upon you, weeks, months, years. And furthermore, how you might very well be building upon the legacy of prior generations and the way in which God has navigated the course of your life to this particular moment that you find yourself in. 
Solomon is not self-centered in his approach here of his prayer. He's mindful of the promise that God has made to his father David. Remember, O Lord, in not my favor, David's favor, all the hardships he endured. Now you look back at various hardships in the past. And you realize that even hardships are colored with different hues of grace. David himself, in the midst of all of his hardships, whether it be fleeing from Saul, his conquests in battle, his challenges when he had longed for a temple to be constructed, only to find out that God had ordained that David's son, not David himself, be the one to construct that temple. All those hardships now are part of Solomon's mindset as he's thinking about the way in which God's promise has guided him to this point where he's able to offer praise to God. Now look back over the hardships of the past, not only yours, but your parents, your grandparents, and how all of these are part of putting together a thread of life that brings you to this point in time to help you to better understand what it is that God is doing. And then you color that with the promise that God has given in the past and how it relates to your life in the present. All the hardships he endured and how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Jacob was the one, of course, where in Genesis, where in chapter 28, in fact, he found himself experiencing a visitation, if you will, from God. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar, poured oil on the top of it, called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was loosed at the first. And then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way, I will go, I will give him and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And now... Solomon takes the vow that was made by Jacob, couples it to the vow that David himself had made to the Lord, the mighty one of Jacob. And notice in quotes in verse 3 how it reads. David, in essence, was saying, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. He wants to sense the presence of God. And so now he's praying, David is, to be able to establish a setting, a temple where God can be honored. So now what we find here, that when you are praying the promises back to God and then praising him in advance for their fulfillment, You start by reviewing the past, as Solomon does in verse 1 through 5, even the hardships, the bad times, as well as the good times, and how they've brought you to this place. 
And then maybe you've got an answer to the huck fins of this world, because he had his doubts. And from the lips of Mark Twain's character come these words concerning prayer. Miss Watson, well, she took me in the closet and prayed. But nothing came of it. She told me to pray every day, and whatever I asked for, I would get. But it weren't so. I tried it. Once I got a fish line, but no hooks. It weren't any good to me without hooks. I tried for the hooks three or four times, but somehow I couldn't make it work. By and by, one day, I asked Miss Watson to try for me. But she said I was a fool. She never told me why. And I couldn't make it out. No way. What do you say to a world in which is looking for hooks and God's not delivering? And they begin to wonder if he's even there. A June Bender would say to you and say to me that she's been nurtured with the understanding to fuel her prayer life as she approaches each and every day. I pray the promises back to God and then praise him in advance for their fulfillment. Now, once you review your past, even the past days of this year, and do in the likes of what verses 1 through 5 inform us, you take the review of verses 1 through 5 and you allow them to shape the requests they are found in verse 6 through 10. In verse 6, Solomon now, as he pens these thoughts, continues to say, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. And you and I are looking at this and say, This just doesn't connect with me. It's not on my, uh, not on my GPS. Where do I go? You notice where it says, We heard of it. Circle the word it. The word it refers to the Ark of the Covenant. For 20 years it had been dislocated. The Philistines had captured it. The Israelites had recaptured it. But evidently they treated it as just another memorabilia in the antique shop of Israel. But look a little further. We heard of it. In other words, we found out where the Ark of the Covenant was in Ephrathah. And if you were out at Christmas Eve service, you heard this read at a certain point. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. And now, irony of ironies, Solomon is quoting, David is saying, it's been under our nose this entire time. For 20 years, it's been out in the fields of Bethlehem, this Ark of the Covenant that signifies the presence of God. And all of a sudden, what's beginning to unpack in front of your very eyes poetically and at the same time prophetically is that this passage is speaking of the Bethlehem story. 
And here is David. And he's forecasting that ultimate son of David who would enter into Jerusalem and people would be praising the one, the son of David. And here's David saying, we heard of it. We had simply overlooked it. But then again, so in the days of Jesus Christ, people overlooked it. In fact, even the scribes at the time in which the kings from the east had come to worship the king of kings and lord of lords and checked in with Herod in Jerusalem, the scribes themselves did not go to Bethlehem to see whether or not he was there. And to this day, Jesus still gets overlooked, you know. But we heard of it. The Ark of the Covenant signifying the presence of God in Ephrathah, Bethlehem Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jah. He, he was the owner of the property. Let's go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And then once this has been set up, three significant appeals that will appear on the screen one by one help us to understand how Mrs. Bender would challenge you and challenge me to pray the promises of God to him and then praise him in advance for their fulfillment. Notice the first appeal. It's the appeal for God's presence. Verse 8. Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. The very same words, in fact, that, that Moses himself would have utilized when in Numbers chapter 10, as they were going to go into military battle, he would cry out, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And now what you want and what I want is we end 2014 and enter into 2015. We want to have the tremendous sense the powerful understanding of God's presence with us and leading us. It happened in the 1970 revival at Asbury College. The professor of Bible, Howard Anke, records it in Robert Coleman's book, The Asbury Revival. Perhaps those tears express more eloquently than words what has happened. There is no human vocabulary that can capture the full dimension of one divine moment. In some ways, it almost seems like a dream, yet it happened. We saw it with our eyes. Listen. In a way impossible to describe. God was in our midst. And those of us who were there can never look upon the things of this world quite the same. Have you reached a point in your spiritual journey where you have this tremendous sense because of God, through the work of Jesus Christ, becoming central to your life, has given you the sense of his presence? 
in all the wilderness wanderings. The Israelite people were desperately dependent upon that pillar of fire, upon that cloud in the sky, that the God who was with them was the God who would go before them. Now you look back over the hardships of the prior years and the prior months, and then you refresh your mindset as you close out this year and start a new year. I need and I long for the desperately felt presence of God with me. going before me. For as the professor writes, in a way impossible to describe, God was in our midst. Now when the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the temple in Jerusalem under Solomon's leadership and found in verse 8 the so-called resting place, If you read 2 Chronicles, particularly from about chapter 5 and 6, you will find this tremendous sense of God's glory filling the temple to the point where there is such a thickness of the presence of God, the priests were overwhelmed by who was there. And that's what we need as we bring closure to this year and enter into a new year. That ought to be the first appeal. If you feel like your prayers bounce off ceilings, you take the promises of God, you pray them back to God, and then you praise Him in advance for their fulfillment. Now you take that and you review like verses 1-5 through provide us an example of the past, so that then you're able to make your appeals one by one regarding what you need pertaining to the future. And you start with that desperate longing for the presence of God within you, around you, before you, as you make your way through the wilderness of life. Now, once you've done that, here's the second appeal. flows out of verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. And you say, God can't relate. Well, let's give it a shot. The second appeal here is the appeal for God's people. Notice, speaks first of the leaders. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. doesn't say, let your priests be clothed with religiousness. There are religious unbelievers galore. There are religious leaders who are unbelievers galore. Notice here, it is not religiousness, it is righteousness. And you and I are made righteous, declared righteous, we should say, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of the Messiah's work, Jesus Christ. And when that happens, and when you see leaders who are clothed not with religiousness, but with righteousness, locally, regionally, globally, the result is that believers 
have this sense where the doors of their hearts are open wide and there is this there is this inward shout for joy, a sense of release, because even though the outward circumstances may be seemingly working against you, the inward reality is working for you. The presence of God there is so empowering. You have his presence, you are connected with his people, and then you can entertain the third appeal found in verse 10. It's for God's anointed one. The Old Testament word Messiah. The New Testament word Christ. All tied to this phrase anointed. For the sake of your servant Solomon? No. For the sake of John Dick O'Hare? No. For the sake of Sue or Sally or Jolene? No. For the sake of your servant David? In other words, God had made this irrevocable promise that was going to come from the line of David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And now you and I begin to think seriously at the way in which God goes about drawing people's minds and hearts and attention to the one who entered this world, Bethlehem Ephrathah, so overlooked even by the scribes who knew it intellectually but did not seek him out personally. And it happens again and again and again in services and in congregations throughout the world. Are you seeking Jesus? You know, Karl Marx wrote that religion is the opiate of the masses. And there are those that would argue that Christianity is a crutch for the weak person. And that it is simply a psychological means of coping with life. Though I would argue that you could flip it around and pose a question is it possible as well that people then create the idea of the absence of God, an atheistic presentation, as a psychological means of being able to cope with life so that they don't have to submit to the one who is holy and righteous? Now, with that in mind, how do you, how you describe and how do you pose questions to the person would argue that Christianity is simply a crutch. Well, you might want to get contemporary on them and say, have you checked out a movie that's hit the theaters about Louis Zamperini? Now, it's entitled Unbroken. But what you've got to understand here is that there is a powerful rest of the story that's tied to it. Now, I'm looking at some various excerpts by Laura Hillenbrand, who's written a very powerful story about him. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list for four years after its debut. And it traces the story of this Olympic runner from California, became a World War II hero, Zamperini survived a plane crash 47 days on a raft in shark-infested Pacific Ocean, two years of brutal abuse in Japanese prison camps under the persecutor who was nicknamed the Bird. And when the book came out, my mind went back to the time in which, back in New England, Pam and I were positioned to minister, and I was involved in overseeing counseling at the floor on the floor of the Billy Graham Crusade in Hartford. 
And in preparation for that, I was reading some various volumes on Graham's life. And then came across a paragraph about the 1949 crusade, where it went on for eight weeks at least, in which Billy Graham was wearing down. He knew that the end had to come, and now reading from his fine biography, not that the blessings were diminishing. It was then that Louis Zamperini was converted. He came to Christ. He was the U.S. Trek star who had pulled a flag bearing the Nazi swastika down from the Reichstag during the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games. Later in the Second World War, he was shot down in the Pacific and drifted on a life raft for 47 days. He survived attacks by Japanese pilots who swooped down on him for target practice. And finally, the Japanese captured him, put him in prison for two years, and although he was a famous athlete and war hero, he came home feeling unhappy and disillusioned. And one night, he wandered into our tent in Los Angeles with his wife and put his faith and trust in Christ. Even somebody whose movie describes him as unbroken, needed a Messiah, needed an anointed one, did not merely need a psychological boost, you see, to cope with the issues of life. In the 1949 crusade, his biographer, Hillenbrand, found the message that Billy Graham spoke from that evening and describes the scene in her book in which Graham preached, quote, Here tonight, there's a drowning man, a drowning boy, a drowning girl that is lost out in the sea of life. Do you see how God brings people to this inner conviction that this is not simply a psychological crutch to get us through the coming year, but rather this is a divine reality. So the presence of God, the people of God, centered in the Messiah of God, the Anointed One, draws our attention to the fact that if one who could be described in the film as unbroken, puts faith and trust in Christ. Then we come to the conviction that what is necessary is the brokenness of spirit when we become aware of our sinful nature and we need to have put faith and trust in Jesus as Messiah, our anointed one. Now, you allow for the promises then to so shape your prayers that you praise God in advance for their fulfillment. And once the appeals are made, and notice the appeals in verse 1 through 10, then you move from the appeals you make to God in 1 through 10 
to the answers you receive from God in verse 11 down through verse 18. What is interesting is the way in which all of this seems to match up. Do you remember we began by studying in verse 2 that David swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob? Now what we are told in verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. And what is it that God said? And of course, you can read about it in 2 Samuel seven thirteen and 16. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. As Magi from the east would be looking for him. As a pilot would be taunting him. And if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit on your throne forever. Which means they would be transmitters of this promise. Even if they disbelieved and were not immediate personally involved in experiencing true salvation, they were transmitters of the unconditional promise to come. And now out of this, you and I find that the passage that we considered, Christmas Eve night, resonates with what's spoken of here. When Mary would find out from Gabriel, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And now after the psalmist has spoken of the mighty one of Jacob, the Lord swore to David a sure oath, and he has said, I will set this one on your throne. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. And once you do what Solomon has done, even when answers are beginning to come your way regarding the confusing issues you're facing in life, as you bring the promises before God and praising Him in advance for their fulfillment. Three answers now emerge from these verses that I think have direct bearing upon what you and I are looking at here. And the first is found. The first is found here in verse 13. <coughs> for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. There are three significant answers that stand out here. The first, God has chosen his city. It's Jerusalem. Notice the descriptives. He's desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I'll dwell, for I have desired it. Now, notice it's forever. And through the years, people have said, well, where's the fulfillment? But in 1948, Israel gained nationhood status. An epicenter of all cities, Jerusalem is. And now what we find, that city, which means literally the city of peace, 
so conflicted, is still anticipating the ultimate fulfillment of Christ returning a second time where peace on earth will reign forever. Amos Oz is a novelist who's widely read in Israel. In his book, Michael, In My Michael, he has Michael saying, Jerusalem always makes one feel sad. But it's a different sadness at every moment of the day and at every time of year. But the reason why Oz says that is he's a humanist. He champions spiritual pluralism. He's looking for unity among a fragmented people in a fragmented society. He's not finding the solution because he has not put his faith and trust in the anointed one who is designated for that anointed city. Now, the psalmist is putting it all together for us. The Ark of the Covenant has been positioned in the temple. The glory has filled the temple. All of this is a foretaste of that day still to come. 1948 has come and gone. Nationhood established. Who would have thought? And now we await the return of the Lord. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place, he says. Forever. So now you look at these words and you say, if God can do that, and if he can work out these issues globally, he can also handle my issues personally. Are you praying the promises back to God and praising him in advance for their fulfillment? A second answer. Look carefully with me now. Look at verse 16 and loop it back to verse 9. In verse 16, her priests will clothe the salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. Loop it back to verse 9, where that was his appeal. Let your priests be clothed of righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. Here's the answer. Her priests, I will clothe. They won't clothe themselves with salvation. This is not salvation on the basis of human effort. Her shouts... Saints will shout for joy. That is the response of salvation that is established through and on the basis of God's work, not on the basis of our work. God has chosen his city. Second of all, God has equipped his people. The leaders then are clothed with salvation. And the result is the people who love Jesus shout for joy And so even if you're going through difficulties in life right now, you don't let the outward shape the inward. You allow the inward to shape the outward. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, you see. And so the presence of God within us shapes even the most powerful influences against us and allows us to be able to, in our own challenges going into 2015, to think if God could bring 1948 about and give Israel nationhood, if God, on the basis of his grace, equips his people with salvation, what have I got to say about all this? Notice verse 17 and 18. Here's your, here's your third answer. God has distinguished his anointed one. You know what to look for. 
just as the angels told the shepherds what to look for in, in Bethlehem. And God sovereignly arranged that probably no other baby born that night would be found in a manger. It makes it clear who this one is. Now he's saying, I want to be clear as to who this is. And he offers three significant symbols of the one you and I know as Christ. The first symbol, the horn. I will make a horn to sprout for David. In the Old Testament, the horn was the symbol of power. The second symbol, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, for my Messiah. There's the symbol of the lamp. And so when Jesus would say, I'm the light of the world, people would immediately be able to understand this. And it would take them back to the temple in which the priests were responsible for keeping that lamp going in the midst of their daily responsibilities. And this was to be a perpetual lamp in a darkened world. And so as we stood together and sang Holy Silent Night at the end of the Christmas Eve service, even as the lights were being dark and the candles lit, the light was penetrating the darkness. And so it is when we live for Jesus. Your third symbol is the crown. His enemies, in verse 18, are clothed with shame, but on him his crown will shine. But what interests me is that the Hebrew word here for crown, netzah, carries it with it the idea not only of a crown that was used by a king upon his head, it was the same word, Nazah, that was used to describe what was placed upon the high priest's head. And here you have now the idea of the king priest, which we studied last week in Psalm 110, standing out for us in these verses. And I thought about that. When my family gathered together, it's been our tradition. Maybe you do the same. And We went to watch another of Tolkien's presentations, The Hobbit, third part. And I was trying to memorize some of the stuff that was being said and events that were taking place. In particular, I was looking at the way in which Tolkien would use like and dark imagery in his books and how it was being, through Peter Jackson, uh, portrayed on the screen. But also I was fascinated because Tolkien, as well as C.S. Lewis, of course, they lived in England, very king-type consciousness of the way in which the idea of the kingship is used in, in Tolkien's writings and also in Jackson's movie. And here were some sentences and phrases and scenes that stood out. You gave a promise. Bilbo said to Thorin, King Thorin, who seemed to be backpedaling, going back on his word, And then you have a Messiah, a kingly Messiah. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. The king has issued his commands, said Legolas, but he cannot command my heart. And we see how 
so many people want to make Jesus simply an honorary king, one who mingles among us, but not one who reigns over us. Bilbo turns to Thorin subsequently. And there's this incredible discussion that takes place that leads to this point where Thorin and one of his kin are in talks with one another. You sit here now in these vast halls with a crown upon your head, and yet you are lesser now than you ever have been. And you contrast that with Jesus in all of his glory. The three days later, just as was promised, was raised from the dead and seated on the throne in all of his glory. June, tell me a little bit about your spiritual disciplines and how you pray. And this wise, elderly, senior citizen, the executive secretary, turns to me and says to me, Oh, Pastor, I've learned to pray the promises of God back to him and then praise him in advance for their fulfillment. And now you take what's happened with Israel in 1948 you go back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You go over the sum total of all of history, and then you take it home personally, and you say, okay, I'm going to claim those promises. I'm going to get personal. I'm going to offer praise back to God, even in the midst of my hardships, and let God fulfill his plan and his time for his glory. That's how I'm going to approach 2015. Let's stand together. So, Father, you've given us a very powerful tool here where the poetic and the prophetic merge together, where the king priest stands out in these verses, where promise and fulfillment find their ultimate climactic conclusion in Jesus Christ. And so if there's anyone, Father, who comes here today and they are spiritually curious, intellectually hungry, show them, Father, how the promise made to David 1,000 years prior to Messiah entering into Bethlehem comes together that even in the fields of Jah, there was this Ark of the Covenant that had been overlooked in the region of Bethlehem, a foretaste of the one who would be overlooked, born in a stable in Bethlehem, and took some Gentiles appearing from the scene to arouse the Jewish population to the promises being fulfilled. Help us to take the promises described here now and share them with others. They can see Jesus shining through us. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. God bless you.